Hello and welcome to this extra inning of The Ballpark, a podcast from the Phelan U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, Managing Editor of the Phelan U.S. Center's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. For this extra inning of The Ballpark, my colleague Mohit Malik and I spoke with Marie Yovanovitch, who was the United States Ambassador to Ukraine from 2016 to 2019. She has also held posts as U.S. Ambassador to Kyrgyzstan and Armenia, and from 2001 to 2004, she was Deputy Chief of Mission of the U.S. Embassy in Kiev, Ukraine. She is the author of the new book, Lessons from the Edge, a Memoir. Marie Yovanovitch joined us on the 25th of January, 2023, to discuss U.S.-Ukraine relations, the role of diplomacy in resolving the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, and European security. On the 26th of January, 2023, Marie Yovanovitch also spoke at the Phelan U.S. Center event, Lessons from the Edge, a Memoir. So your new book is... Lessons from the Edge, a memoir. Can you give our listeners a a quick overview of of the book? Yeah, so I wrote the book because after I testified publicly in former President Trump's first impeachment trial, I got thousands of letters from Americans, actually from people all over the world, but of course mostly Americans, saying you know they didn't know about diplomacy, they didn't know about the Foreign Service, and they wanted to, to hear more about it, the kinds of things that we did and why. And many people encouraged me to write a book. So in January of 2020, I retired from the Foreign Service. And I thought, well, I guess I'm going to write a book. And um, so I started writing the book. And in part, it was my answer to all those people about what is diplomacy, why diplomacy, why it's so important to people. I mean, it seems very remote, perhaps, for somebody who's living in the middle of America and not really thinking about foreign affairs. But actually, the work that we do on every day is keeping America safer, it's keeping America more prosperous, and it's keeping America freer, every American. And I wanted to, you know, through my memoir, through my stories, I wanted to explain that to people. But I also, um, there were other reasons that I wrote the book. I wanted to honor my parents who were immigrants to the United States, who, you know, just set a shining example of Um, service to other people. They were both teachers. Um, And they were very grateful um, that uh, we had a place in the United States um, and that they were able to bring up my brother and I in freedom. You know, they both came from totalitarian regimes. And so they knew what it was um, to live without freedom. And they really appreciated it um, when they had it. And um, they brought us up, even though we had nothing materially, um, they brought us up to... um, Think about, you know, how we could give back Um, one way or another. It didn't matter what it was, um, but we needed to give back to our community, to the American people for the opportunities we've been given in America. So I, I wanted to honor my parents, but I also wanted to talk about the importance of service, that we are in a community in the United States, in the world, and we need to be working together to strengthen our democracy, strengthen our foreign policy, and to help each other out. So that was that was part of it. And I also really wanted to talk a little bit about being a woman in, uh, in diplomacy, uh, what it was like in the early years. Um, and, you know, it was not all, you know, puppies and rainbows. <laughs> um, there were some challenges along the way and uh, the importance of perseverance uh, in whatever line of work, uh, whatever you're doing in your life. It's important to keep on going despite the obstacles. I could go on, but I'm going to stop there. Well, thank you so much for that. It's a fantastic overview. So 
My next question is, drawing from your extensive experiences as being an ambassador to states from the former Soviet Union, what role do you think a diplomat or diplomats can play in helping to bring about a resolution to the current conflict between Russia and Ukraine? I think it's a really important role. And even though it looks like right now nothing is going on on the surface, there are lines of communication open to a certain extent between uh, Ukraine and Russia. I mean, they're able to negotiate over the grain deal. Uh, over uh, release of prisoners. Hopefully one day uh, it will be about uh, a negotiated peace um, that provides uh, Ukraine with, you know, its its lands, its its autonomy in keeping with uh, global international order, the principles of global international order. And there are lines of communication open between the United States and, and Russia as there are with, with other countries. And that's important that we, you know, when, uh, for example, uh, the Russians... Um, make loose threats about using nuclear weapons. Obviously, I mean, I don't know what happened behind the scenes, but it's clear, because President Biden told us, that the U.S. made clear that using nuclear weapons, Russia using nuclear weapons, uh, would be the wrong way to go for Russia, first and foremost. And what we've seen is, while there are people trotted out that continue to sort of um, periodically make these threats, Putin himself has stepped back. At Valdai, he was like, who, who, me? No, no, I, <laughs> that, that, that wasn't me. And, and obviously that is a, a welcome uh, development because clear weapons is a very serious, um, serious business and we always need to take it seriously. Um, so I think there are multiple roles for, for diplomats, um, but here's uh, where we need to be careful. Um, I mean, Russia has made all sorts of overtures to the West, but particularly the United States, where Russia wants you know, to be back in the 1800s, great power politics, you, the US and Russia will decide Ukraine's fate and maybe the fate of other, other countries um, in, in, in the region. And um, you know, those days are past. Um, the people of Ukraine have agency first and foremost. And, you know, the United States, again, uh, Joe Biden has made very clear the United States is not going to entertain those kinds of negotiations. You know, one of the expressions that um, we used to use when I, when I was um, in Ukraine as ambassador is that, first and foremost, as President Biden says, uh, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. Um, but we had a pithier way of explaining it, which is, you know, Ukraine or any country needs to be at the table or you're on the menu. Um, so that is very important for us to remember. How would you say Ukraine-American relations have evolved since the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union? And what do you see as being the future of America's relationship with Ukraine? Yeah, well, you know, in 1991, uh, the U.S. was, I think, the second country after Canada, which recognized uh, Ukrainian independence. Both Canada and the United States have very large Ukrainian diasporas. And as a result of diaspora support, but also I think there's just an affinity between Americans and uh, Ukrainians. The support for Ukraine has been very, very strong since 1991. And it's been bipartisan. And it remains, you know, <clears throat> despite some of the things we're hearing now, uh, it, it remains um, bipartisan. And I think that's that's very important. And I think the the American people also support Ukraine. Going forward, I would expect that to continue. Um, I, I I think there's going to be strong support uh, for Ukraine uh, going forward. And I think our relations are only going to get closer. So in your assessment, how do you find the handling of, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine by the Biden administration? And do you think a difference in American leadership could have maybe prevented the invasion from occurring? Um, so I, you know, I, I no longer speak for the American government, um, but I, I believe that President Biden and his administration have handled um, this unprecedented challenge. I mean, I think this is the greatest challenge to freedom in our time. 
And I think that President Biden, you know, given given his 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 history in in the region where he has sort of been present at the creation of almost every major development in Europe over the last 40 years including in Ukraine and Russia. And so I think he understands it cuz he was there and he understands the history and the scope and the significance of what is happening right now. And so I think there's nobody better to uh, lead the United States to lead the West in what I believe to be an unprecedented challenge to freedom. You know, when I look back, I think that, you know, I think maybe some of us would have been surprised by the strength of the American response, how, you know, week one, and we were just, um, you know, pushing weapons um, systems and other forms of support out the door, as well as a package of sanctions, combined with uh, Europe and other like-minded countries. And I think, you know, had you and I had this conversation a year and a half ago, we would not have predicted such a strong and unified response. And I think it's in large part due to to the Biden uh, administration, um, President Biden's personal leadership in this, that we have um, such a strong response against, um, against Russia, which has, without provocation, aggressively um, invaded a, a neighbor country. Uh, I mean, it's 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 crazy if it if it weren't the truth. So the second part of your question, I mean, I, I don't know who or what you have in mind in terms of you know some um, other alternative that could have produced a better outcome than the one we have today. But I think the Biden administration tried really really hard to convince Russia uh, that this is not the right way to go. And so you'll recall that, you know, Russia put out all sorts of red herrings, you know, that this was about NATO, that this was about, um, you know, security arrangements in Europe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they sent a letter to NATO and they sent a letter to the United States. Both responded substantively and relatively quickly. And then the U.S. led up, you know, discussions. I think there were three different uh, meetings in Europe in um, in January, February timeframe before the war started to try to to talk to Russia about, you know, if this is the problem, you know, these are areas that where we can talk to you about and let's, let's, let's get started. And it was clear that that was not what it was about, that Russia really wanted to invade Ukraine and expand its empire um, into lands that do not belong to Russia. And, you know, the other thing that I think was just unprecedented was the release of classified information, not only to Ukraine to warn them of what was coming, but to the world to let us know that this is where Russia is headed. And you'll recall there was huge debate, you know, could this possibly be true? You know, is the U.S. making it up? And on and on, and Russia wouldn't be that crazy. But it it actually turns out that Russia was going to invade Ukraine, did invade Ukraine, and that the goal was not just to take a little hunk of Ukraine, another little hunk, but to actually annex the whole country and uh, decapitate its leadership and uh, make it part of the Russian Empire. I'm not sure what else we could have done. Um, so I think there are some critics that say, well, we should have done all of that, you know, the sanctions and the sending of, um, of uh, military support earlier. But, you know, I think that would have fractured the alliance um, because people would have said that um, the U.S. was behaving aggressively, uh, that Russia hadn't done anything. Russia wasn't going to do anything. I mean, you'll recall there were are some major allies that did not believe it right to the very, very end. I think President Biden made a choice, keeping the alliance together, doing the diplomatic work beforehand so that we were all ready to go um, should Russia invade. And then we then Russia invaded and we we went. I think that was the right call. You know, these things 
will be debated in history. But um, overall, I think the Biden administration gets a pretty good grade on how they have handled uh, this uh, really difficult challenge. Just a really difficult challenge. We've talked a bit about NATO already. You've mentioned NATO. What are your views on an argument that claim that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is in part, at least, linked to NATO because of its expansionism? Well, so I think it's important to remember that NATO is a defensive pact. It's not an organization that is seeking to uh, expand into Russia, attack Russia, or anything else. It is there as a collective defense um, organization, the most successful in the history of the world, it has to be said. And the reason that um, NATO expanded after 1991 is that uh, what we used to call Eastern European countries, now Central European countries, came to NATO and said, we want to join NATO. It was not because NATO was out there recruiting. Uh, It was because those countries remembered Russian history and uh, wanted um, an element of security, which they thought they would get through NATO. And, um, you know, fast forward to today. Finland and Sweden, countries that have historically for decades been neutral. Um, And, you know, they looked at the um, invasion of Ukraine and they decided it's time to ditch that and it is time to become a member of NATO because we need the security of that defense, collective defense. So I think, you know, obviously Russia has its own story uh, about NATO um, in my view, it's a story. Uh, I, I don't see how, uh, how NATO threatens uh, Russia or the Russian people. And um, Russia has itself to thank for the expansion of, uh, of, of NATO. Um, it, it is its own actions over the centuries and, you know, more recently over the last year that have driven other countries wanting to become members of uh, NATO. The war in Ukraine has raised some questions about European security and how, how that's organized. Do you think it might be time for a new European security framework that might even be separate from or replaces NATO? You know, that's a good question. I mean, I, I know there are a lot of people who are, um, who are experts who are thinking hard about these kinds of, of issues. And, um, and I think we do need to think hard about this. I, you know, it's not just um, security uh, institutions, it's other um, architecture of the post-World War II global order that probably needs some refurbishment. I mean, I'm thinking about the UN, for example, um, that needs some modernizing, needs some updating to become more effective for and more, more reflective of what the world looks like today, um, but also um, more effective um, given the challenges of today. Sadly, we don't do these kinds of difficult uh, thinking um, projects and, and um, uh, reform projects without a crisis. But, you know, uh, somebody very famous once said, and many others have repeated, uh, you know, you should never let a good crisis go to waste. And I, sadly, I think this is a crisis that is um, forcing us to think hard about European security. Now, what that architecture looks like, um, you know, I'm probably not the right person to, uh, to answer that question, but I think this is definitely on the table in terms of um, a really important agenda item for, you know, this year and, 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 and coming years. Yeah, thank you so much for those answers. I really like some of the parallels, actually, because I also come from a family of teachers, and I'm a Canadian as well, and I know, you were, I think you were born in Canada, right? So that's that's a nice connection there. I do have a couple of questions. I first want to go back to the very beginning when you were talking about that feeling of uh, sense of service, which your parents instilled in you, and 
that I suppose undergirded a lot of your diplomatic work. Uh, I know before you became the ambassador to Ukraine from 2001 to 2004, you were also the deputy chief of mission in Ukraine. And that's a very different Ukraine to the one that you probably were the ambassador, um, the American ambassador for. Did, did you feel a greater sense of service the first time around just because of that transitionary period that Ukraine was in? And does that sense of serv- is the sense of service that you feel towards the people of the country that you are in or towards the United States? Um, and this doesn't just have to be about Ukraine. It could also be when you were you know, in Armenia or in Kyrgyzstan. Yeah. yeah. Well, first and foremost, it's service to, um, to the United States and the people of the United States. I mean, one of the things that I would always tell my teams, you know, we, we, we are about, you know, first and foremost, and to the nth degree, we are about U.S. interests and U.S. values. And, you know, I was fortunate that in many of the countries I served, um, there was a confluence, including actually the U.K., <laughs> there was a confluence in those um, values and, 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 and interests. And then much of my career, as you know, was in the former Soviet Union. And um, after 1991, these new countries, many of them um, requested assistance, not only of the U.S., but of the U.K., the EU, Europe, um, Canada, um, for assistance in becoming democracies, becoming market economies. Now, did they know what they were asking for? I think most of them probably did not. Uh, and they certainly didn't understand, and, and neither did we, that it would be, you know, a decades-long uh, process um, and how painful, uh, you know, much of it would be. Um, so, um, so, you know, coming back to your question, yes, I, you know, when you're in a country and you're working hard with uh, the leadership, but also civil society activists, people who are trying to move that country forward. And when you travel around the country and you see people who who want and deserve a better life. Yes, I mean, I, I felt that I was um, doing my bit uh, to help them as well. But it was always through the lens of uh, serving the American people. Uh, George Schultz, who was the Secretary of State under Ronald Reagan, he used to um, have this practice of inviting new ambassadors into his office on the seventh floor, fancy, fancy room, historical room. And he had a big, big globe. And he would ask each new ambassador to show him, and I'm sure it was all hymns, um, <laughs> you know, where is your country? And of course, everybody would show the country that they were being assigned to. And he would say, no, 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 <laughs> you know where this is going. Uh, and he would gently move the person's finger to the United States. And he would say, this is your country. And that's, you know, a really gentle way, I think, of reminding all of us um, that we are, you know, first and foremost, first and foremost servants of the American people. Thank you so much. I also wanted to ask about, I think this, the, the Russia's invasion of Ukraine has open up a needed conversation on America's security being linked to the security of other parts of the world, particularly following uh, the presidency of Donald Trump, where it seemed like there was more of an isolationist retreat. At the end of last year, President Zelensky gave a speech uh, uh, to a joint session of Congress. And I think in that speech, one of the points that he highlighted was that linking of security. I'm just curious from your point of view as a diplomat, how do, do you think Americans, and I know this might be hard to say, but do you, do you think they feel that sort of need to, to, to have this presence in Europe? Because certainly it's much more palpable here if you're in Europe and you, and you have a country that's as powerful as Russia. But do you think Americans have that sense of, you know, we need to have this role 
in Europe because it also assures our own security as well? You know, that's a really good question. So polling shows, um, you know, in the beginning of the war, the American people were, were very supportive of Ukraine. Um, they remain supportive of Ukraine, but a, a little less so. You know, it's 11 months in and it's, it's a long grind. I think that to the extent that Americans think about it, to the extent that leaders in America explain what you just said, you know, how our security is linked to European security and um, the importance um, not only, you know, for cultural reasons, not only because we are all good citizens of, you know, the free world, um, but for, you know, hard-nosed reasons like security and trade, you know? I mean, this is a big market for us, if not the largest. And um, so it, it is definitely in our interests um, to, um, to help uh, Ukraine and help Europe in this matter. But I think that the U.S. leadership, um, both um, Democrats and Republicans, have to do a better job, and they're starting to do that now, of explaining what Zelensky made so um, so clear to um, the joint session of Congress, um, that this is not about charity. This is about an investment in America's security, in world security. You know, the threat, so, so just to step back for a moment, um, if Russia prevails in Ukraine, Russia will keep on going. <laughs> you know, Putin has told us this, and I think we should take him at his word. Um, and, um, so it is better for the United States. It is better for Western Europe to help Ukraine stop Russia in Ukraine, um, than it is to go, you know, that is something that is, you know, feisty little country. We love them. Um, but you know, that's really not our concern, um, because we will have to confront Russia at some, an aggressive Russia at some other later point, probably at a time, not of our choosing and perhaps not to our advantage. Um, so, you know, when people complain about the cost of $38 billion, which Congress voted for this uh, fiscal year to assist Ukraine on the security side, that's like not even a tenth of our um, security budget. And uh, we are um, able to, um, you know, through helping Ukraine defend itself, not by attacking Russia, but helping Ukraine defend itself, we're able to degrade Russian military capability. You know, one of our two biggest adversaries, um, massively, with no boots on the ground. That is the deal of the century for the United States. This is not an argument that is really being made to the American public right now. And I think, um, especially since it looks, sadly to me, that this war is not going to be over anytime soon, I think it's an argument that we need to start start making so that the American people understand what our stake is in this war and are supportive of it so that, um, you know, representatives in Congress feel justified and um, that they're not going to be called out in the polls if they um, continue to vote uh, for, uh, for, you know, large budget outlays for Ukraine. Thank you. Yeah, I think just as a final point, just looking to the future as, as hard as it, as it is, do you view... This latest invasion of Ukraine, of course, I mean, sometimes we forget that in 2014, Russia did exactly. annex Crimea, and that's, it's, it's almost odd to me how and that's... Domus. And Donbass. Yeah. I mean, not annexed, but invaded. Right, invaded, sorry. It's, it's, it is quite surprising that that's almost completely gone from public consciousness, but do you see this as being more of a Vladimir Putin thing, or is it a... This like is it is it deeper than him and is there because sometimes people say you know if he goes it might be somebody even worse that comes but it, you know how do we begin to even move forward and and there's two parts to this and I know this is gonna I, I don't mean to make this too complicated but one is 
is it a Putin thing, I suppose? But then the other aspect is, how do we also in the West now begin to engage non-Western countries? Because a lot of non-Western countries, and to them, it's because it's not a conflict that concerns them. They're remaining fairly silent. Some are even aligning with Russia. But I think it would be almost helpful to move beyond even just ideas of European security and thinking in more broad terms of global security. I want I wonder if you agree with me on that. Yeah, I do, um, because I think this is about the international global order. And so even if um, you're a, a, a country that doesn't really uh, identify with any of this, um, I think what most countries do believe, I mean, in fact, I can't think of one who wouldn't, um, that uh, the UN principles uh, of inviolability of borders, the, you know, the prohibition against uh, the use of force or the threat of force, um, the right for countries to um, have self-determination. Um, I think most countries believe in that, especially if you're a small country, right? And so what Vladimir Putin and Russia are doing right now is an assault on, on those principles, on the international global order. It's not just the European um, security system. It is much broader than that. I think that if, if he prevails in Ukraine, other dictators, other strong countries are going to go, you know, the West isn't committed, actually, to the international global order. I can do what I want. Might makes right. And I'm not going to have a problem with other countries saying, hold on, uh, you know, this is not right. And we are going to support, you know, the rights of uh, this little country. Um, you know, a might makes right kind of a world um, obviously is bad for small countries. It's also bad for a big country like the United States because it makes for a less secure overall environment. We would have to spend even more on security. Um, our supply chains, if you can imagine what COVID did, if you can imagine what you know a, a world uh, where dictators are constantly disrupting, um, disrupting the order and, and life in general, um, uh, you know, supply chains would be disrupted. Trade would be more difficult. Um, and I think we would be less free because, you know, there's always, um, even in democracies, there's always a tension between security and freedom. And um, so that would be, we would all, all have to be, you know, watch guards of our freedom as well. Um, so I think um, you're absolutely right. This is much broader than, um, than just Europe. And I certainly do try to, to paint it in, in, in those terms. Thank you. I just have one, one final question kind of aligned to the news today. So, um, we saw this morning that um, I think Germany and the U.S. are selling uh, tanks and more material directly to Ukraine. Do you see any risk in an actor like Vladimir Putin feeling that this is an escalation and that it means more of a direct involvement in the U.S. in the conflict? Is that is that a risk that that is being taken? Do you think? You know, there there are risks always. Um, there's also risk in not doing uh, in in doing nothing and not providing tanks, right? And so I think that the important thing in this conflict is that we not be self-deterred. Uh, you know, we're, we're playing and have played these head games with ourselves because, you know, Vladimir Putin sets these red lines and then we blow past them and he does nothing. Which isn't to say that we shouldn't always be carefully evaluating and thinking and managing those risks. Uh, nobody wants an expanded war. Um, but I think we need to remember that the escalation came from none other than Russia. I mean, invading a sovereign country. We need to keep on remembering that when we talk about, well, we shouldn't escalate. We, we're, we're not sending tanks into Russia. We are sending tanks 
to Ukraine so that they can defend their borders and their people. I mean, these are people who are fighting for their sovereignty, but also, you know, their freedom, their families, and their lives. I mean, they know if they do not prevail in this fight that Russia is going to stamp out the people, the culture, the language. I mean, think of what they're doing with the children of Ukraine, you know, sending them to Russia, thousands and thousands of children who are not going to remember that they are Ukrainian once they're, you know, adopted by Russian families, not going to remember uh, the Ukrainian language, not going to know that they have families who love them in Ukraine. Um, Imagine that on a nationwide scale. Um, I think that, you know, Ukraine has to fight on, Ukraine has to prevail, in the words of Taras Shevchenko, <laughs> um, Ukraine's poet laureate. And, um, and I think we uh, in the West need to provide whatever support we can as fast as we can um, so that that as- military assistance gets there in time because every day brings more deaths in Ukraine. And so, you know, the cost is very, very high for delay. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Well, that's all the questions I think we have. I just wanted to say thank you so much for speaking to us at the ballpark today. Marie Yovanovitch was the United States ambassador to Ukraine from 2016 to 2019. And that's it for this extra inning of the ballpark. Thanks to Marie Yovanovitch for joining us in this episode. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson, Mohed Malik, and Anderson Tan. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rear Rangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. You can look them up at rangerswings.com. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. You can email us any feedback at uscenter at lse.ac.uk, or send us a tweet at lse underscore us. And please, tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the Phelan US Centre or the London School of Economics. Thanks so much for listening.